Matthew chapter 18. This morning we will be looking at verses 5 through 9 as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of this gospel. While you're turning there, may I just remind you that there are really two categories of people in the world. There are those who know the truth and those who live in deception. Those who blindly, therefore, follow the foolishness of their hearts, the foolishness of man, and gleefully chase after all of their lusts. And many of them chase after some religious system, which is nothing more, Jesus says, than the broad way that leads to destruction. But by God's grace, many of us, within the sound of my voice, know the truth. We, we have the truth. It's right here in God's revelation. But we must not only have the truth, but we've got to know the truth in the sense that we've got to understand it and submit to it in order for us to glorify God and enjoy all of his blessings. Therefore, it's very important that we carefully examine the infallible record one verse at a time, And that's what we do every Sunday. We try to leave no spiritual stone unturned, lest we deprive ourselves of some marvelous insight that God could use to have us know him better and therefore enjoy him more and be more blessed by him. In fact, in Luke 10, Jesus was rebuking Martha, you will recall. Because uh, she was complaining that Mary wasn't helping her with all of her domestic duties. And Jesus basically explained in that text that the number one priority in the Christian life is to humble ourselves before the preaching and the teaching of divine revelation. There's nothing more important than that. So here we are again today on the Lord's Day, being hopefully quick to hear, as James tells us. As children of God, wanting to know more of his word. In fact, it's interesting. We have learned already that in Matthew 18, verse three, Jesus says that unless you're converted and become like children, you shall not enter into the kingdom. Well, we understand that the concept of being uh, like a small toddler that's humble and unassuming and helpless and, and therefore totally reliant upon his saving grace and so on. But, you know, the other thing about. A little child is that they are curious and dear friends, we need to be as children when it comes to the word of God. We need to have an insatiable curiosity about what God has for us in his word. By the way, Peter really understood this, didn't he? Because later on in his epistle in first Peter two, two, he tells us that we need to be like newborn babes. We need to long for the pure milk of the word that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. Now, this is crucial for all of us as children of the kingdom in order for us to be able to even understand how to get along with one another. And it's sad that too many Christians today, I fear, are like the immature saints in Corinth. You remember they were bickering over tongues and uh, some of them were into a lot of emotion and a lot of experience And they were abusing the tongues, the gift of tongues, which was to be 
the proclamation of the gospel through foreign languages. And instead of that, they were into all kinds of emotional gibberish that had nothing to do with that original gift. They lacked discernment. And you will recall Paul was condemning them because of their jealousy and their pride and their arrogance and all of the strife it was producing in the church, the broken fellowship and on it goes. And he tells them in first Corinthians 14, 20, brethren, do not be like children in your thinking, like evil in, as an evil babe, but in your thinking, be mature. And that's what we want to be. Those people needed to know the truth and they needed to submit to the truth. And dear friends, once again, as we approach the word of God this morning, let me say simply that you will never grow apart from a lifetime of diligent study in the word of God. You're not going to learn it just today or next month or next year. I spend many hours in the word every week and I can and I have most of my certainly my adult life. And I will tell you that it never ceases to amaze me how little I understand of the word. And every time I get into it, I find yet another glorious truth that fits into some other truth that I never really understood in that way. In fact, I'm sometimes embarrassed to go back and listen to some of my sermons five and ten years ago. And I hope that I will mature. Hopefully, by the time I'm so decrepit, I can't hardly get up here. If you'll still have me at that time, I will really be a good preacher. I'll really know what the word says. But you know what? I've talked to old men and they tell me the same thing. They say the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. And so my responsibility is real simple. I'm to come before you and to preach the word. To give you the truth. You know what your responsibility is? To hear it. To long for it. To submit to it. Long for it as if it is a matter of life and death. Like that little infant that longs for mama's milk. Because he cannot survive without it. Well, we have been learning much about being children of the kingdom. This is our Lord's emphasis here in this gospel. Here in, especially in Matthew 18. And we have been examining the fourth of five of our Lord's sermons, five of his discourses that are presented here in Jesus gospel. Now, by way of remembrance, you need to remember that Jesus has now foretold for the third time that he is going to suffer and he is going to die in Jerusalem. This is very confusing to the disciples. They don't want to hear this. They're very much like people today. They want a Jesus of their own making. They don't want the true Jesus. And so they're confused and they're grieving. But instead of asking, Lord, how can we comfort you and how can we understand this and how can we suffer with you? Instead of that, they reinvent what God is up to here they rewrite the future according to their own desires, and they're still thinking, oh, he's going to bring in the kingdom. And so they've been bickering over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus has just rebuked the disciples for this jealousy and this strife, this arrogant bickering. They obviously had an inflated opinion of their own spirituality, which we all have a tendency to do. 
And of course, this was quite the opposite of the childlike humility necessary to enter the kingdom. Indeed, in verse four, we read that whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom. And again, may I remind you that this was a big problem with the disciples, because even after the Last Supper, when Jesus predicted his betrayer, you realize this, the disciples started arguing over this very thing once again. In Luke 22 and verse 24, it says and there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. The text literally is telling us that they were interrogating each other. They were questioning each other to try to outdo one another to see which one was the greatest and which one therefore deserved the highest rank and the highest status. They were striving for supremacy. Inconceivable. And friends, before we get into the text, may I just say once again, there is no place for prima donnas in the church. There's no place for that. I've seen it to the point where it sickens me in large ministries and Christian music, especially contemporary Christian music. Dear friends, there is no place for the temperamental artist or the religious celebrity that is convinced of their spiritual their, their spiritual prowess or their, their, their superiority. There is no place to walk around, strutting around like a peacock, showing off your spiritual plumage. There is no place for that person that considers adulation and, 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 and privilege something that is a right and then ends up reacting with petulance and with criticism when they are somehow inconvenienced. There's no place for that in the church. Nor is there a place for some religious control freak in the church that bullies and badgers people with their personal preferences or their pet doctrines. There's no place for that. Those who have beams as large as redwoods protruding from both eyes, running around trying to find the speck in somebody else's eye. There's no place for that. And people tend to do that because they are convinced that they are the greatest in the kingdom. Dear friends, the Christian life is a paradox. If we want to gain our life, what must we be willing to do? We've got to be willing to lose it. Those who want to be first must be willing to be last because the last will be first. The ones that are strong are the ones that are weak. The ones that are poor in spirit inherit the kingdom. The meek and the gentle, God tells us, inherit the earth. In fact, in Isaiah 66, verse 2, we read that the person that gets God's attention is the one who is broken and contrite of heart and who trembles at his word. So if you want to be first, that's what it takes. It takes humility. So the theme of this particular discourse in Matthew 18 is the child likeness of the believer. Therefore, the title of this sermon is quite simply Children of the Kingdom, Part Two. We have learned so far last week in Part One that we enter the kingdom as a child. Today, we will see that we must be protected as children. And in the following weeks, we will learn that we must be nurtured, disciplined and forgiven as children. Now, with that way, with that as way, a way of uh, background Let's look at verse five. 
Jesus says, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it out from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Our Lord's emphasis here, dear friends, is simply this. His children must be protected. And I've divided this text into three different sections to help you understand this. We're going to see the blessing for kindness, the curse for mistreatment and the safeguards for godliness. First of all, let's consider the blessings for kindness. Notice in verse five, he says, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, this presupposes that we need continual care, does it not? We need continual care. And again, the context here is Jesus is is probably in Peter's house there in Capernaum. And he's taken a child, probably one of Peter's family members, child, uh, a, a little toddler, one that could barely walk. And he's taken that child and put that child on his lap to give an object lesson on humility, on childlikeness. And here he says, whoever receives one such child, in other words, one like I have in here on my lap, in my name receives me. The word receive literally has the idea of taking someone into you. It has the the notion in the original language of of showing someone great kindness, great hospitality. You see, hospitality and the idea of receiving someone to you was a matter of life and death in those days. Because when you went someplace, you didn't go check into a motel. You didn't go check into a restaurant. They didn't have hospitals if you needed some kind of medical attention. So you had to depend upon hospitality. And so he says, if anyone here, whoever receives one such child in my name, a child referring to a child of God. Who, if you receive him in my name, literally upon my name or on the basis of my name or on the account of my name. Then you receive me as well. Luke nine, verse 48 gives us further insight to this there. Luke writes in his gospel, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you. This is the one who is great. In other words, those, Jesus says, who would say, oh, you're a child of the most high God. Please come into my home. Please come into my life. How can I help? How can I encourage you? How can I Give you assistance. This is the one who is greatest in the kingdom. This is the one 
who God will bless and exalt. So when a child of God is treated in such way, so too is the Lord. What an incredible thought. Now, as parents, we all understand this. We all know what it's like when we have someone treat our children with kindness. When someone receives one of our children who perhaps is in some kind of need and, 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 and cares for them. Uh, Jack and I remember when we were in Kenya, uh, though those dear fellow believers had never met us before, they treated us with great care, great tenderness, constantly inviting us into their homes as meager as they were and showering us with kindness. I remember when I was in Israel and um, there was a, a, a time for a period of, of several weeks where I was on a study tour and we had a Bedouin, a Muslim um, bus driver. And it was interesting how he invited the whole bus and there was about, oh, 20, I think 28 of us on that particular bus, invited us all over to his home with his family and they fed us a, a great feast and offered us gifts. And these were not wealthy people by any means. Of course, this is quite foreign on, in our culture. We're, we're a bit more selfish and self-absorbed and we just don't want to be inconvenienced. But that's not the way it was in that culture, nor is it that way even to this day. And so, friends, bottom line, what the Lord is saying here, and I want you to catch this, we are to receive fellow believers into our hearts and even into our homes when necessary to care for them. Even as we would sacrifice for our own children. And I want you to think about that as you look around in this room, as you look around at other fellow Christians. Is this the passion of your heart? If you want God to exalt you, and if you want to truly exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, you will get serious about this admonition. When Jesus comes again in glory, the word of God tells us that he will place his sheep, which are the believers on his right and the goats, which are the unbelievers on his left. And in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. He says something very fascinating here. Jesus says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them. You did it to me. Friends, may I ask you, who have you received lately? Who have you invited into your life and into your heart and perhaps even into your home? What Christian have you seen that is in some kind of a need and you decided to help them? To maybe feed them or clothe them or visit them? When they're sick or perhaps in prison. 
And I don't mean just by making a donation. You know, it's real easy for us to prepare a shoebox and think that we've done our task, right? And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But folks, it's altogether different to in person go and visit a shut-in. To in person go and help a person in need. Something much more different, much more difficult about that for many people to get outside of our comfort zone and to do that. To see a need and even privately go in person and meet with that person. This is what is required to protect God's children. Well, I've heard all of the excuses and I've used some of them myself. You know how they go. Well, I, 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 I just don't like old so-and-so. I know they got some need, but that person's weird. You know, I'm glad the Lord didn't think that with me. Or, well, you know, that's not my responsibility. That's the pastor's job. Or after all, we've got a benevolent committee that can handle those types of things. Or well, what am I supposed to do? I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Oh, really? How about offering them a word of kindness, inviting them into your home and saying, you know what? I'd love for you to come over and we'll just share a cup of coffee. I'd love to get to know you a little bit better and just pray for you. What is so hard about that? You see, folks, these are the types of things that God would have us do. To take care of the children in the kingdom of which we are all. And beloved, there therein is the blessing, the blessing of kindness on that day of judgment. You will be exalted. In fact, as we study the word of God, we see that at the judgment seat of Christ, that great Bema, when believers receive the rewards, their, their rewards, the king of heaven and earth will burn up all of the dross of our selfish deeds and he will illumine the precious gold and, 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 and silver and jewels of our selfless deeds. And he will do that in the face of God, the father and in the glory of the Holy Spirit and in the presence of a host of angels. So the reward comes someday. I'm reminded of God's promise in Second Chronicles 16, 9. There we read that the eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the world that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. That's what the Lord looks for. But oh, what a contrast to verses six and seven, where secondly, we see the curse for mistreatment. There, Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now, again, every parent understands this. Every parent knows that anyone that mistreats any of our children will certainly incur our righteous indignation, even our wrath. Certainly, we are constantly trying to guard ourselves from our, and, and to guard our children from sexual predators and what drunk drivers and drug pushers and, and all of these types of things. But you know what? There are other threats that many times we fail to consider that are very, very dangerous, that can cause our children, even our children, to stumble, not to mention other brothers and sisters in Christ, which is the context here. The phrase cause to stumble literally means to cause to sin. 
It, it means to cause someone to fall and the context here is to fall into sin. Now, I want you to hear this, folks, because this is so important. Anyone guilty of tempting another Christian to sin, anyone through example, deception, false teaching, withholding information, uh, uh, provoking somebody to anger and despair or, or even some kind of a direct seduction. Anyone that does that not only assaults a child of God, but assaults God himself. That's why this is so important. Now, we've got to digress for a moment, because as I was thinking about this, I I thought of how important it is for us to understand our union with Christ and therefore why, if we are being hurt or we're hurting a fellow Christian, how that, in fact, is an assault against God himself. It's important for us to understand in the context of our salvation that we are united to Christ. You see, at the moment of regeneration, when the divine pronouncement of our justification has been made, we are miraculously united with Christ. And here again, like all great doctrines, this is an inscrutable mystery of God that I can't fully explain. But there are some things that the scripture helps us to understand. So bear with me for a moment. You see, at that point, when we come to a saving faith, a saving knowledge of Christ and we're transformed, no longer is he our savior in heaven, but now he is our savior inside us. The triune Godhead dwells within us. And you see, this union literally becomes the basis of salvation and all of its blessings. You see, no one can bypass Christ and get to God. It can't happen. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, but through me. And so there is no way that we can experience any spiritual blessing apart from Christ. It cannot happen. Ephesians chapter one and verse three, Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places In Christ. An amazing thought. We're in Christ. Now, folks, this isn't pantheism. This doesn't mean that we're somehow mystically absorbed into God who is in all things. We don't somehow, um, when we become a Christian, share in his essence and become little gods. That's just silly. Nor is there any physical union whereby we ingest his body through the observance of 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 some ritual as taught by the sacramentarians. Nothing like that. But rather we enjoy an intimate relationship and a spiritual oneness in Christ. This is taught, by the way, explicitly in Scripture as well as implicitly. Let me give you just a couple of passages of many that teaches this explicitly. In our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 22, Jesus says, And the glory which thou, talking to the Father, hast given me, I have given to them, referring to believers, that they may be, that they may be one just as we are one. An amazing concept. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. 
And in verse 19, you will recall, he goes on to describe how our bodies are, are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, we read that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. An amazing verse. The Lord knew even in eternity past. The color of our eyes, the sound of our voice, the color of our hair, our, our, our personality, our gifts, all of those things. We are his workmanship, but we are his workmanship, not somehow separate out here, but we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. And Peter reminds us in Second Peter 1, 4, and when we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, we are partakers of the divine nature. Now, our union with Christ is also taught implicitly in Scripture as we delight in the various figures that represent our relationship with him. There is the figures, for example, of the husband and the wife, the bride and the groom, or even the vine and the branches, all of which would depict a a spiritual intimacy and a shared life. There's the figures of the body and the food. Remember in, in John 6. He talked about how that he is the living bread and were to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Of course, that wasn't literal, but but a spiritual analogy. He was speaking metaphorically that even as we must eat and drink for our physical life, likewise, we must we must believe his sacrificial death on the cross in order to have spiritual life. There's also the figure of the head and the body of Christ. Christ is the head. We are part of the body. We are members of, of, of this mystical organism, the body of Christ. And just very briefly, I want to give you four stunning truths about this reunion. Beloved, when we think of this, first of all, this is a supernatural union authored by God. In John 14, verse 23, we read that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, the triune Godhead, will come to him and make our abode with him. With the Greek word para. It means we get our word parallel from that. It means alongside, parallel. The triune Godhead is with us. Not only is it a supernatural union, but secondly, it is a vital union, a living union. His life becomes our life. In Galatians chapter two and verse 20. We read that I have Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God. Who loved me and delivered himself up for me. But not only is it a supernatural and a vital union, it is an indissoluble union. It means that it can never be severed. That's why it's so silly to think that somehow we can lose our salvation. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39, you know the text. It tells us that absolutely nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And finally and fourthly, This is a mysterious union that cannot be compared with any other human relationship. Paul tells us this in Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 26, where he says the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints 
to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. An amazing concept. Christ in you. We're in him. He's in us. The hope of glory. Literally, friends, we possess the inconceivable and surpassing riches of Christ living in us. Because of our union with Christ, our redemption is eternally secured. The Bible says that we've been crucified with Christ. We were dead with Christ, buried with Christ, raised up together in Christ. We're seated together in heavenly places in Christ. We're hid in Christ, in God. Because of our union with Christ, the word of God tells us that we can enjoy all of his spiritual blessings. We no longer have any condemnation in Christ. In Christ, we are free from the law. We have the righteousness of God in him. We have wisdom, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The Bible tells us we can have whatever we ask in his name because we're in Christ. Our mortal bodies will be raised from the dead. And indeed, the dead in Christ shall be raised. But not only is our union because of our union with Christ is our redemption eternally secured and and we can enjoy all of his spiritual blessings. But, dear friends, because of our union with Christ, we will someday be made perfect and complete in his likeness. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.10 that we are complete in him. And finally, because of our union with Christ, we can enjoy a vital and blessed union with all other believers because we're all members of what? One body. We're, we're the organs and, and the limbs serving one another and putting the spirit of God on display and functioning consistently with the head who is Christ. Indeed, Galatians 3:28 says that we are all one in Christ Jesus. All right. Here's the point with that little theological excursion. Dear friends, because Christians are united with Christ. Any harm directed toward us is likewise directed toward him. That's why this is such an, a, a significant issue. So this idea of causing a Christian to stumble, causing them to fall into sin is deadly serious because it is a direct assault upon the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we live. I think of Deuteronomy 32:10. There, the covenant people, the Jews, were, were depicted as a man that was wandering in the wilderness, out in the howling wilderness, the text says. And then God comes and rescues them, and it says that he kept him as the apple of his eye. And later in Zechariah 2.8, we're warned that anyone who injures God's people, Israel, quote, touches the apple of his eye. The reference being the apple of his eye was a, was a reference to the cornea. I mean, friends, only, only a fool would dare to poke the Lord of hosts in the eye. Scripture gives us many figures of God protecting his children, the eagle hovering over its young, a hen gathering her chicks, a mother nursing her child, and on and on it goes. And dear friends, never, ever underestimate the intimate love of a faithful God. He, he never sleeps. He never slumbers. His, his eyes are ever vigilant to guard his own. Therefore, we better not mess with his children. 
That's why Jesus is so serious about this. Only a fool would cause his own children to sin. And certainly the same is true with the children in the kingdom. Think of this. Think how easy it is for someone to seduce someone into immorality or to slander or malign someone's character and provoke an innocent person into retaliation. Think of other ways that would cause people that we can cause people to stumble. How about failing to discipline your child and tolerating defiance of authority with your child so that you cause that child to stumble as they learn that there is no need to fear authority and no need to fear God. Or provoking your children to anger by smothering them with overprotection or demeaning them with harsh criticism or abusing them with harsh speech and calling them names or giving them punishment that is far beyond the crime. How about causing your daughters to stumble, parents, by letting her dress like a trollop? How about parents allowing their children to watch filth on television and to worship some of the pop icons and to have their posters in their bedrooms? How about allowing your children to wear the clothes of the pop pop culture and begin to adopt their styles and therefore their values? Or how about dads? Setting a bad example in the home where children begin to watch how you function in your spirituality and they begin to see, you know what, spiritual, the spiritual things aren't that big of an issue for my dad or my mom. And so why should they be for me? Or how about dads being hot tempered or demanding or intimidating or falling off on the other end of the spectrum and being a pusillanimous wimp that never does anything? That just kind of wanders around and lets mama and the kids do whatever is necessary in the home. Causing his family to ultimately forsake God and seek relief. You know, it's sad. There's a common theme in problem kids who end up being problem adults. And you know what that is? They've had a father typically who did not lead that family spiritually. We see that over and over again. A father who had no secret devotion to God, who had no personal pursuit of holiness, who failed to love his wife as Christ loved the church, who violated Ephesians 6, 4, where the fathers are told to not provoke their children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And it's equally sad to see mothers who refuse to lovingly submit to the leadership of their husbands and then end up smothering their children with some kind of a parasitic involvement at the expense of the husband or even ignores her child because she sees the child as the ultimate inconvenience so that she can pursue her own interests. Folks, these are ways we can cause even our family to stumble. What about you, teenage girl, that would perhaps dress in a seductive manner to cause a young man's lust to be inflamed? You're causing him to stumble. What about... A teenage boy that would take a girl to a movie that would violate her conscience and expose her to some kind of blatant immorality and cause her to stumble. Do you realize what an assault that is on God with whom that believing girl is united? What about the failure to be a good example 
in the neighborhood, to be a good friend, causing others to stumble because they sin out of frustration. What about Sunday school teachers and pastors and youth pastors that refuse to teach the whole counsel of God because it's too offensive? Thus concealing, life-changing, Christ-honoring truths from babes in Christ and making them more vulnerable to their own sinfulness. How about causing a weaker brother to stumble by exercising your freedom in Christ in a matter that would offend and, and violate the conscience of an immature brother? We read about this in Romans 14 as well as 1 Corinthians 8. You will recall the Gentile, uh, some of the new Gentile believers were condemning the, 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 the new believers, the, the Jewish believers that were new because the Jews, oh, they just couldn't bring themselves to eating pork or violating the Sabbath or, or participating in, in other ceremonies required under the old covenant, even though those ceremonial regulations were now, obs- now obsolete. And the Gentiles were giving them a hard time about that. And on the other hand, the Jewish believers were condemning the the weaker Gentile believers that had come out of hideous idolatry because they were they refused to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And finally, Paul rebukes them both in Romans 14, verse 20, saying, all things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. In other words, folks. Keep the non-essential preferences. Keep all of those things to yourself. The faith which you have, he goes on to say, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating. His eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Beloved, again, causing a child of God to stumble is serious. That's why Jesus says it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, this was a brutal form of punishment that the Romans used, a form of execution. The millstone here literally refers to a a large stone, usually 100 pounds plus, that a donkey would use, that they would hitch it up to a donkey and the donkey would turn the stone around in order to grind grain. And what they would do is uh, take this and tie a chain or a rope onto a person's neck and fasten it to the stone and throw the stone into the water. And you would go extremely fast to the depths. And uh, it's estimated that you would probably... Um, die of the of the great pressure, the weight of the water before you would of drowning. So this was a terrible thing. And Jesus is using this to get their attention. And in the context here, Jesus couldn't have had it made. couldn't have made it any clearer to his disciples. And that's just what he's saying is, listen, guys, all of this, this jockeying for position, all of this arguing about who's going to be who's greatest in the kingdom. All of this is causing your brother to stumble. You're stirring up anger in your brother and contempt and jealousy. And you see, friends, we've got to learn to do the opposite, to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. First Timothy 4.12, Paul tells Timothy as a young man, and by the way, young man, I hope you hear this. He says in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. 
And in Titus chapter two, verse seven, he says, I urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine. Dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond approach. And of course, of course, um, Paul said in first Corinthians 11, verse one, to be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. May I ask you, what kind of example are you? If I were to ask your children or your co-workers, your wife, your husband, your mom or your dad, what kind of an example are you? Where are you causing someone to stumble? A common scenario that I deal with, I would say at least monthly, perhaps even biweekly. And I'm not not a lot in this church, but certainly as I counsel with people through the email and the phone from people all around all around the country. I constantly deal with family members that cause other family members to stumble. Let, let me give you kind of a, of a typical scenario. A couple gets married because they thought they were in love, but really they were infatuated and they really didn't understand the idea of entering into a covenantal relationship and and um, serving one another and, and fulfilling the roles that God had given them and so on. But they call themselves Christians and Maybe they, in fact, are. But what typically happens is they end up in some weak church with a weak pastor and the pastor causes them to stumble because he never teaches them. They never really grow. They are never confronted with their sins. And so the couple wanders around in their marriage. Before you know it, they have kids. And what you begin to see then is the husband is all stressed out at work and and he begins to take that out on his children and on his wife. And before you know it, he causes her to stumble because now she's desperate for some relationships. So she attaches herself like a parasite to the children. Now she's causing her children to stumble because she's provoking them to anger. Likewise, she's now causing her husband to stumble because she spends all of the time with the kids rather than any time with the husband. You can begin to see how the whole thing begins to unfold. And before you know it, he decides that the pastor's green or someplace else. And so he's just going to going to get rid of that woman and, and go find another one, because after all, I was probably never really in love with you in the first place. And so as he leaves her with an unbiblical divorce and she finds another man and decides to marry now on the basis of uh, Matthew five thirty two, she is an adulterer and the husband has caused her now to commit adultery. And the thing goes on now because the wife now who has married this other man and the husband typically will marry somebody else. Both of them are causing their children to stumble even further because what they're saying to the kids is that God is incapable of working in relationships. And so when you have conflict, kids, the best thing to do is to just seek relief at all costs. Do you see how it works? And then those children grow up and the whole scenario Cycles back once again. And certainly there are variations on that theme, that, that same type of a theme. But friends, don't you see how important this is? And very often you will hear these families called dysfunctional families. I, I really don't like using that term. I like to say that they are stumbling families. They are stumbling families. They, 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 they've had other people that have caused them to stumble. 
And as they stumble into sin, more and more, they cause others to stumble into sin. And on and on it goes. This is serious business when you mess with God's children. No wonder there's such a curse for such mistreatment. Verse 7, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. And certainly there's a myriad of things in the world. People that don't know Christ, the stumbling blocks of evolution of, uh, that they teach our kids, of, of, of Hollywood's programming, of public schools that would teach, the, you know, again, the idiocy of evolution, that things just spontaneously generated out of nothing and that we've evolved from apes. My, what a stumbling block that is. The stumbling block that somehow homosexuality is an alternative lifestyle. The stumbling block that that would tell women and, and even men that unborn babies are not viable persons. And if you don't really want them, just just kill them. He goes on to say, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, certainly from the world, because the things of God are foolishness to them. But he says, but woe to that man. In other words, cursed is that cursed is that man. Damn that man, he's saying, through whom the stumbling block comes. And friends, if I can put it a little bit differently to help you see just how crucial this is. Woe to those predators in pulpits that deceive for personal gain. Woe to those parents that abuse their children by failing to teach them diligently the truth of the word of God and to discipline them so that they will fear God. Woe to that Christian that dishonors the Lord in their life so that other people see their hypocrisy and then view the church with contempt. Woe to you. You'd be better off dead. Because you are not only offending other children of God, not to mention people in the world, but for those children of God that you are offending, you are also poking your finger in the eye of the Lord of hosts. Well, God has not left us without remedy. Finally, thirdly, he gives us the safeguards for godliness. Verses eight and nine. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet or to be cast to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Now, folks, obviously he is speaking figuratively here. Jesus has already taught that sin flows from the wellsprings of an evil heart. It's not from the body. If you mutilate the body, all you've done is mutilate the body. You've not eradicated sin because sin is in the heart. But here's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Dear friends, sin is so serious, especially the sin of causing one of his children to stumble, that we must go to every extreme to deal with it, to avoid it. Now, in the Jewish culture, the right eye and the right hand symbolize the most precious and highly valued servants of the body. And so what Jesus, again, is saying is, is whatever is, is, is dear to you, if it causes you to sin or if it causes you to lead others into sin, you need to get rid of it. All of those inward lusts, secret sins in the imagination, all of those things must be constantly mortified. They must be starved, even if they are precious to you even as precious as an eye or a hand. Because, friends, if God has condemned it, we must abhor it. We must forsake it, no matter what it is. 
Every habit. Think of the habits that you have. And I know some people have a habit that if they decide they want to do a particular thing on a Sunday or sometime when they need to be involved in ministry or in worship, you know what's going to be the priority? The habit. Or some relationship, some form of entertainment, some recreational hobby. Friends, if it causes you to stumble, you need to forsake it immediately. That's how serious it is. Sin must be put to death, according to Colossians 3, 5. It cannot be pampered. You cannot savor a sin. You cannot pander certain lusts in the secret recesses of your imagination. Because eventually it will destroy you. We must be like Abraham who left his native country for fear that he would be enticed into the idolatries of the land. We, too, must flee from any kind of environment that would tempt us. And therefore, us end up tempting other people. I know some of you have done that. Some of you have left cities that were wicked cities to get your kids out of that environment. Some of you have seen that your wives have become golf, hunting, fishing widows and on and on it goes. And you've begun to forsake that because you've seen how that has that is causing your wife to stumble and perhaps your children. I know some of you have stopped going to certain gyms and fitness centers because those things are causing you to stumble and you might be causing other people to stumble because those places are for the most part places notorious for inflaming lust. I know people that have left schools and colleges because the environment is so corrupt. The world is squeezing them into its mold and on and on it goes. So, folks, figuratively speaking, Jesus is saying it is better to sacrifice your right eye or, or, or your right arm, your right hand, than to lead a child of God into sin. Because, again, that child of God is united to the Most High God. And if you want to invoke the wrath of God, then you go ahead and start messing with his kids. Just like if you want to invoke my wrath, you start picking on my kids or my grandbabies and vice versa. We understand that. But it's one thing to understand that it's another thing to begin to live it. Paul understood this for this very reason. He said in first Corinthians nine twenty seven, I buffet my body and make it my slave. Lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. Beloved, if we deal decisively with our sin, with our own sin, we will be far less likely to cause others to stumble. Now be careful as we close here this morning. I want to give you a caution because I know how this works. Some of you right now, in the quietness of this moment, in your mind, you're frantically trying to silence your conscience. You're putting a big, big N.A. on everything that I've said, you know, not applicable. I know all of the excuses. I've used them all. So have you. And friends, here is the danger of the human heart. You're saying, well, I'm glad he's not speaking to me. And, and, and you're justifying the way you are or the things you do. Your conscience is trying to tell you. He's talking about this in your life and this in your life and this in your life. And you're doing all of the mental gymnastics, all of the rationalizations, all of the blame shifting and the finger pointing. Friends, I want to caution you, if you turn a deaf ear to this warning, 
and you decide that you're not going to deal radically with whatever the Spirit of God is bringing to your conscience, it very well could be that you love the world more than you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And God says that if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. And therefore, you could be in danger of what Jesus says here in verse 9, being cast into the fiery hell. In other words, there could be, if the rebellion is strong enough, this could be an indication that you don't know Christ. So you need to examine your heart. But I think for most of you as believers, we have to come along and examine our hearts. Otherwise, we end up causing other people to stumble. And when we do that, we place ourselves in the pathway of divine chastening. And I know so many Christians that live in the pathway of divine chastening. That cloud is always over them. You know how I can see it? They're not faithful in Christian ministry. Again, they have no secret devotion to God, no power in their life. They care nothing about prayer. They care nothing about uh, fellowship with other people. You will hardly ever see them doing anything to nurture and protect and minister to someone else in need. Life is all about them. They're sour, they're sullen, they're depressed, they're powerless. And quite frankly, when other people get around them, you just feel drained. Those are the marks of divine chastening. And they're typically as well unforgiving. And you will see in weeks to come that when that occurs, when those things begin to happen, as we will see in verse 34 of chapter 18, these people are given over to the torturers of life. And that's divine chastening. Then marriages fall apart. Jobs fall apart. Relationships fall apart. Eventually health falls apart. And eventually you fall apart. So I plead with you, dear friends, get serious about your sin. Do whatever it takes to drastically deal with it, especially the sin of causing some other fellow believer, some other child of God to fall into sin, to cause them to stumble. And only when we do this will we be faithful in protecting fellow believers. Let's pray together. Father, these verses are so clear to us, and yet I confess, and I'm sure others as well, that it's difficult for us to see the many ways that we cause others to stumble. Lord, I pray that the severity of this warning will somehow penetrate our hearts and cause us to change. Lord, may we be forever changed because of what we hear here today. And Lord, I especially pray for that person that may not know you as Savior. Lord, I pray that you will bring overwhelming conviction to their hearts, that they would be converted, and that they too would enter into the kingdom as a little child, utterly dependent upon the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with humility and desperate for your care. Lord, thank you for meeting with us this day. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. 
For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.